Good morning. Good to see you. It's a new shirt day. If you see Carl in a new shirt, he's probably preaching. So, brand new, washed, dried, ironed, still got the new shirt lines, whatever. So many of you know, I spent a lot of my adult life in the restaurant business and the music business, and that's where a lot of my anecdotes come from. And so when I come up here, many of you think, is it going to be another Little Caesar story? And the answer is yes. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm here for you. So I started washing dishes at Little Caesar's Pizza when I was 15. I was in high school. I continued working at Little Caesar's through high school, graduated high school, moved to Denton to go to college, continued working at Little Caesar's there. And by about my sophomore year of college, I was now the number two guy at the store. I was the assistant general manager. And I was enjoying that job, making reasonable money, got to work the hours that I wanted. Things were pretty good. But I got a phone call from my boss's boss one afternoon. I came home from classes, was going to get ready to go to work, and I got this phone call. I answered it, and it's my boss's boss, who does not ever call me for any reason, because he's my boss's boss. And I thought, hey, how's it going? He's like, great. Listen, here's the deal. Your boss is no longer with the company. We want to make you the general manager. And I was like, word? Okay. So we negotiated a salary. I accepted the position. Now, I'm the youngest general manager in the company. 19 years old, running a Little Caesars, reached my peak, right? <laughs> Very excited. Uh, I already know how to do the job. I know how to take good care of customers. I know how to produce good product. I know how to manage all of the things. I've been doing it for a while, so I feel comfortable with the role. The only thing I wasn't super comfortable with with some of the paperwork and the number crunching that goes along with trying to make sure that it's actually a profitable business, right? So one of the things that had to happen on a pretty regular basis was inventory. You would count everything, then you would do all the math to figure out, have you spent as much money as you should have spent on flour and pepperonis and all these other things, or have you spent too much? Because that determines whether or not you get a bonus, and it might also determine whether or not you keep your job. And so that's the only thing I'm feeling anxious about, is I want to get this part right, the part where I actually produce a profit for the company. And so here I am, my first week, it's inventory week, and so I count everything, I do all the things I've been taught to do, I crunch all the numbers, and the way it works is, you're trying to figure out food costs is your biggest concern. What is the amount of money that you spent on all the ingredients that you use to make pizza versus how much money did you sell those pizzas for? And food cost ought to be somewhere between 26 and 29% at Little Caesars in the early 90s, okay? So I'm shooting for 26 to 29, which is what we've been hitting for months and months when I wasn't the boss, so it shouldn't be any problem. We're not, we haven't changed anything. So I count all the stuff. I start doing the numbers. I start count, calculating all of the stuff. <clears throat> when I get to cheese, cheese is the most expensive thing in the pizza business, okay? Cheese is the most important thing because it costs the most money. When I get to cheese, I do the math, and I have just cheese all by itself without all the other things, just cheese, 54% food cost, which is almost twice as much as everything should be. And I thought, <coughs> I probably did it wrong. I probably did it wrong. Well, redo it. Go in there, weigh all the cheese again, write it all down, come back, do the math, 54%. Okay, so I'm probably gonna lose this job that I just got because I clearly don't know how to do it. But 
I'm going to do it again. So I end up doing this five times, reweighing it, recalculating 54% on the cheese. And I'm thinking, I'm done. I clearly can't handle this. I can't do the job. I'm out. They're going to be done with me for sure. Youngest guy in the company, yeah, you're the youngest for a reason because you're dumb and you shouldn't have this job. But I don't know what else to do, so I call my boss, who was my boss's boss, but now is my boss, and I say, hey, man, how's it going? Yeah, so, so cheese. Man, that stuff's expensive, huh? Anyway, what do you think about 54%? He's like, huh? I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. He goes, you need to redo it. I said, I have redone it five times, and I've got the exact same number every time. And he says, well, Carl, that's not good. I was like, I know. That's why I'm calling you. And he's like, all right, I'll be there in 45 minutes. I'm like, okay. So it's like 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday or something. So he drives 45 minutes from his home to my store. He comes in. He goes, we'll figure this out, man. It's going to be okay. I was like, that's helpful. He goes. He weighs the cheese. He checks all the numbers. He does the math. 54%. I'm like, so? You want my keys or... How does this work? How do you fire me? He goes, hang on, I think there might be another explanation. I was like, there might be another explanation. I would love to hear this. Hmm. Another explanation would be amazing. He's like, give me a few minutes, just hang tight. So he starts digging through all the old paperwork, the old invoices, the old math that's been done by my predecessor. And after he does this for about a half an hour, he goes, I think I figured it out. I was like, okay, what is it? He says, your predecessor was fudging the numbers. Your predecessor was just writing down whatever number he needed on the cheese to make it work so that he had a really nice food cost and he would get his bonus and look great. So all the invoices of what we actually purchased don't match what he wrote down. So this isn't you. You didn't do this. I was like, oh, man, that's good news, right? That means I'm keeping, keeping the job, right? Yeah, he's like, keeping it? He said, yeah, you're keeping the job. It's going to be great. So everything worked out. Now... Why do I share that story with you? Because the way things actually were, the reality of that situation did not fit with, did not conform to the way I thought things were. I couldn't conceive of the idea that someone else had made huge mistakes. Someone else was responsible for all of this. I was responsible. I'm the boss. These are my numbers. It's on me. I couldn't even conceive of it. So the reality of the situation did not fit or conform to the way I perceive the world to be. And I think we're gonna see some of that similarity of people not seeing things the way that they actually are in our text today. So let's pray, and then we will get into the text. Father, we love you. We're so thankful that you love us. We're grateful that we get the privilege of gathering together like this on a Sunday morning to sing songs of praise to your name, to think about and study your word together. Lord, I pray that you'll help us, help us collectively to see and understand what your word teaches us this morning, that we might be edified and encouraged, that our hearts might be reminded of the truth, that you are a good God, that you're doing good things, that you have done good things, and you only do good things. And so that when we get confused, when things don't conform to the way that we look at them, there's either something wrong with us or there's something wrong with you. And clearly it can't be you. And so we pray that you'll give us humility to see those things correctly, that we might understand that your way is the right way, and that we are broken, sinful creatures who can't see things rightly so often. And so we ask for you to be near to us, that by your Spirit you would give us the grace, that by your Spirit you would illuminate the truth of your word to us today, that we might understand you better, 
And that might cause us to love you more and rejoice all the more in what you've done in the giving of your son. And that that rejoicing, that celebration in our hearts would overflow into right worship of you. And that your name might be made great. And so we ask all of these things because only you can produce those things. Only you can change our hearts and give us understanding. Give us worship for your name. So we ask you to be near to us. Help us. We need you. It's in Christ that we pray all these things. Amen. Okay, so we've been in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew for several weeks now, and we've been looking at these, uh, what will now become three different groups of people who have kind of come uh, to challenge Jesus, right? So the first group we saw a couple of weeks ago were the scribes, and the scribes wanted to challenge who Jesus was trying to claim to be, as we see this paralytic man lowered in through this hole in a ceiling in this home, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and the scribes are like, What? You can't do that. Only God can do that. That's blasphemy. And that charge would have been true if it had been anybody else that had said it. If anybody else had tried to forgive someone's sins, it certainly would have been blasphemy. And then we see the Pharisees wanting to challenge what Jesus does. So the scribes wanted to challenge who he was. Now the Pharisees want to challenge what he's doing. There's this big party at Matthew's house. Everybody's hanging out, having a good time with Jesus. But there's tax collectors there. There's people who are known sinners there. And the Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? That's, that shouldn't be done. And now we're going to see a third group of people come and want to challenge Jesus. But this time they're going to challenge for something that's not being done, something that they think should be done but's missing. So let's take a look here. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And so here's this third group, this third group who comes to challenge Jesus, and it's the disciples of John. Who, John who? John the Baptist. So these are disciples of John the Baptist who are coming and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Pharisees fast. We fast. Why aren't your boys doing it? What's the problem? Well, some of John's disciples followed his example of asceticism, which is this idea of kind of withholding good things from yourself, fleeing from worldly pleasures, right? So John the Baptist was this guy who lived out in the wilderness and wore weird clothes and ate bugs. And his disciples are like, that seems like a good idea. Let's also refrain from anything good and let's do all the things that are pious. Let's do all the things that demonstrate our seriousness about our love for God and our love for our religion, And so it does, of course, course appear here that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, and Jesus doesn't do anything to change that perception. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, they do fast, but you don't see it because they do it the way that I told them to do it. He doesn't contradict them. He doesn't say anything about them fasting or not fasting, and there's nothing wrong with it. Jesus doesn't have any problem with it. It was a normal part of Jewish culture, Jewish life. Jesus spoke about it just a few chapters ago in in chapter 6. He says, when you fast, do it like this, not like this. Because the Pharisees did do it the wrong way. The Pharisees were doing it in a way where they were trying to show their good deeds before men. They did it in this kind of outward appearance kind of way. So the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist kind of found this idea, this idea of fasting to be so important, so necessary, so central to their religious life that they were shocked confused when they observe Jesus' disciples not doing that. They're not fasting. That's shocking. That's confusing. That's, that's not how it ought to be. 
Now, we don't know specifically what fast these guys were hoping that Jesus' disciples would be observing, and that's not the point. We don't know what day or what uh, occasion they might have been fasting for that they saw Jesus' disciples refraining from, but that's not the point. That doesn't matter. What they're saying is we do this because that's what good religious people do, and your boys aren't doing it. So they were surprised. They were shocked that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting to the point that they come and confront Jesus about it. Now, their motive for asking this question is likely different than the motive of the Pharisees might have been if they were the ones asking the question. The disciples of John the Baptist were likely not trying to trap Jesus in the same way that the Pharisees or scribes might have been trying to trap him, trying to paint him into some theological corner, get him to utter some blasphemy so that they might be able to accuse him. It seems more likely that John the Baptist's disciples were earnestly wanting to understand This seems right. Your guys aren't doing it. What's the deal there? Which is likely why Jesus entertains the question. He doesn't rebuke them. He entertains the question and gives them a response. So they were surprised and shocked by what they saw, and they asked Jesus about it. Now, that's not abnormal, right? Jesus was always surprising people. Jesus' behaviors and teachings were always shocking. Everywhere Jesus went, he left people saying, who is this? What? What is he doing? What is happening right now? Right? Because he didn't do what they thought he ought to be doing. Jesus was always amazing and surprising people, even his own disciples, who'd followed him around and observed his teachings and observed his miracles and seen him do all these things, and they see him calm a storm, and they're still like, what? Who is this? So Christianity is a surprising and shocking thing, especially to the religious Generally, there's going to be two responses to that shock, to that amazement. One is an eagerness, a desire to understand, to enter in, to be taught, to learn. Right? His disciples that he'd called to himself, they had this eagerness to learn, to follow, to understand. Those who came and listened, many of those who came and listened to his teachings, those who sat and listened to his Sermon on the Mount, those who had been healed by him or observed him heal other people, had this earnest desire to grow and to learn and to understand because they were confused, because they were shocked. The other response is frustration and anger. And this tends to be those who have already counting themselves as pious, faithful, religious people. That's why we always see the scribes and the Pharisees getting all bunged up about what Jesus is up to. I've already got all this religious life figured out. Right? I know what I'm doing. I know where the box is and how to stay inside it, how to be faithful, do what God has said. And here's this new guy teaching weird stuff that pushes against what I believe and how I live. And that makes me feel awkward. It makes me feel weird. It makes me fearful. I'm afraid. And so I respond with anger. So they think they've got it all figured out. They're the ones who are confused and frustrated by the message. Now, these disciples of John the Baptist have their understanding of how things are, which includes regular fasting, and they're not really interested in having their minds changed. Here's how I see the world. You're doing something different than that. I need you to conform to this. They had a hope that Jesus would take action, right? They were hoping to conform Jesus to their ways and not the other way away. They they didn't really have any desire to conform to his ways. They're hoping that by asking him this question, the result will be, oh, Jesus will say, oh, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't think that. Boys, hey, when you get on this fasting stuff. And now John the Baptist guy is like, that's good. 
Things are exactly how I thought they would be. <laughs> that was making me nervous. Cool. But that's not what's happening. And so they are asking him this question, and Jesus gives them an answer in the first half of verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Okay, now this little half of a verse has quite a bit packed in here. We're going to spend a little bit of time in this half verse. But what is Jesus saying? Well, the first thing he's saying is <clears throat> he's comparing fasting to mourning, which would have been easily understandable to these disciples of John the Baptist, right? Fasting is something that you do to show lament or to show piety or to demonstrate a de desire to be dependent upon God, right? You would fast when you were mourning the loss of a loved one. You would fast when you felt that God was far off and you wanted to draw near. You would fast when you were desperate for God to intervene in difficult circumstances. You would fast when you realized and see your sin and you want to repent <clears throat> and you include fasting as a part of your repentance. Think of the people of Nineveh when they finally get to hear Jonah's message that he's been dodging God on for a while. He finally delivers his message to Nineveh. And what do they do? They tear their garments. They sit in sackcloth and ashes. They repent and they fast. These are all ways of demonstrating your dependence on God. I'm going to deprive myself of food, of sustenance, in order to discipline myself to depend upon God. I want, not only with my mind, not only with my heart, but with my body, to depend on the Lord. And so Jesus has already addressed the issue of correct fasting back in chapter 6. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, we studied just a couple weeks ago, where he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So Jesus has already addressed this idea of fasting, and this was just a reminder of the warning that God already gave his people about false fasting back in Isaiah chapter 58. Verses three through six, it says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? This is the people of Israel speaking to God. And he responds, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. God is saying there is a way to fast that is a recognition that I want to let go of the things I'm dependent upon. I want to let go of sin and I want to be dependent upon you, Lord. And there's a way to fast. It's just showing your righteousness before men. And God's pleased with one and not the other. So between Isaiah 58 and Matthew 6, we kind of get a clear picture of what fasting is for and what it's not for. It was meant to be used by men to show their devotion and their dependence on God. But it was often false fasting. It wasn't God that they were trying to please, but other men. 
We do the same kind of thing today. It may not be about fasting, but there are plenty of Christians who are all too eager to share their Christian resume. I've taught this many classes. I've done this many Bible studies. I homeschool my kids. I'm unvaccinated. I went to this church. I voted for Trump. I am friends with insert famous pastor's name here. Have you met people this like this? Have you been like this? This is similar. This is a similar kind of thing where we're bringing our righteous deeds before men. The reality is the classes I've taught, the way I school my kids, the church I attend, the people I know, the way that I vote, Isaiah tells us anything that we see as good deeds are like filthy rags. None of the things that I do that are actually good are worth holding up for others to see. The one thing, the only thing that I have that's worth holding up for others to see is Christ, Christ himself. There's a great song we sing here at Parkway often, my worth is not in what I own. And it says, I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. My human wisdom would have me trying to get Jesus to conform to my worldview. I see the way Jesus says things are, and I don't want it to be that way. I want it to be my way, but it doesn't fit. But it's only Christ that's worth boasting in. I must conform to his way. It's only him that's worth holding up for others to see. So, Jesus has switched from talking about fasting, which was the initial question, to now talking about mourning. But his listeners, these disciples of John the Baptist in particular, would have quickly and easily made that connection. But it's the context of the morning where Jesus' point is made. So Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is talking about being at a wedding, right? This is the last place that you would anticipate mourning or sadness, right? Weddings are joyous occasions filled with laughter and joy and feasting and singing and dancing. Mourning would be out of place. Sadness doesn't make sense. But Jesus doesn't just talk about a wedding in a general sense like I just did. Jesus says that mourning is out of place while the bridegroom is present. What does that mean? Well, John's disciples would have understood the reference that Jesus was making. In the Old Testament, God often refers to himself as the bridegroom and the people of Israel as his bride. Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to his people. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So we've got this idea here that God is the bridegroom. And his bride, Israel, will be cast off. We see that in the exile. But the Messiah will come. And he will be the bridegroom who will have compassion on them with this everlasting love. So God is the bridegroom, the Messiah is the bridegroom, and the disciples of John 
And the Pharisees, who might have been listening to this conversation, would have known it. And so who is Jesus setting up in his analogy here as the bridegroom? As he answers this question, who's the bridegroom he's talking about at this wedding? Himself. Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. Jesus is saying to them, I'm not here to teach you about the bridegroom. I'm not here to give you another prophecy about what God's going to do. I'm here to do it. I'm the bridegroom. I am here. John the Baptist himself would use this language to speak about Jesus in the book of John. John 3, 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself and others, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So who are John's disciples talking about? Who are they asking about? They're asking about Jesus' disciples. They aren't asking why Jesus doesn't fast. They're asking why his disciples don't fast. So in Jesus' analogy about the wedding and the bridegroom, who are his disciples in that analogy? They're the wedding guests, right? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can my disciples mourn as long as I am with them? Is what he's saying. But we need to understand what's meant by wedding guests here. Because in our context, wedding guests are just the people in the seats, right? You've got a bride and a groom getting married. You've got a, a pastor who's officiating the wedding. Then you've got bridesmaids and groomsmen who are attending the wedding, the kind of the official witnesses to the wedding. And then you have the, the wedding guests. But in Matthew, when he says wedding guests, when Jesus says wedding guests, he's not talking about the people here out here. He's talking about the wedding party. He's talking about those close to the bride and groom, those who have a special invitation, those who have been asked to stand and be with them at the wedding ceremony. They are the honored guests. So Jesus is saying, should these special honored guests, part of the wedding party, the relatives of the bridegroom, should they be mourning while the bridegroom is with them? No, right? It's ridiculous, it doesn't make sense. Likewise, to fast or to mourn while the Messiah is with you doesn't make any sense for the disciples. And then also, how does one become part of this wedding party? How does one become a bridesmaid or a groomsman in this analogy? Is it by fasting or not fasting? No. Is it by mourning or not mourning? No. Is it by celebrating or not celebrating? No. Is it by doing anything? No. It's by invitation. The groom decides who's coming to the wedding. He decides who's part of his family. He decides who's invited to the wedding, to the wedding feast. Jesus is saying it's not any activity of any kind that makes you a part of his family, but that you've been invited as an honored guest at the wedding of the bridegroom. And these disciples have all been called by Christ to follow him. He's come to each of them and said, come, follow me. Come be a part of my family, be adopted, share in the joy of my presence. The bridegroom is with them, so why would they mourn? Why would they fast? It's out of place. It doesn't fit. The coming of the Messiah should bring joy, not mourning. It's a reason for feasting, not fasting. And that's the point of Jesus' answer. He's telling John the Baptist's disciples, just like my experience with counting the cheese at Little Caesars, the way things really are doesn't fit with the way you think. The reality of the world does not fit. It is not compatible with the way you view the world. 
They have to abandon their old way of thinking and embrace this new covenant that Jesus is establishing. One where God is the one who does all of the work on both sides of the agreement. Both sides of the covenant are held up by God. He agrees to be our God, to love us, to provide for us, to protect us. And he keeps his promises. The other side of the covenant is that we are meant to be in perfect submission and obedience to him. But we don't keep it. He keeps it for us. That's what Jesus comes to do. This is what Jesus brings. Jesus brings freedom. He brings peace. He brings joy through this new covenant. And he makes possible for sinners to be reconciled to God. They have to abandon that way of thinking that is contrary to that. This idea that they have to do stuff for God. If you've spent your whole life believing that God wants sacrifice, God wants you to do stuff to earn his pleasure and to earn his favor, then it's really, really difficult to understand that it's literally the opposite of that. David tells us this clearly in Psalm 51, which is in a song that we sing here often as well. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David says to the Lord, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David understands, and we should understand, John the Baptist's disciples should have understood that what God is after is everything. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He doesn't want your, just your behaviors. And so Jesus is answering their question. They say, hey, listen, Jesus, me, this guy, the Pharisees, we fast. We're crushing it with the fasting. How come your guys aren't doing it? And Jesus answers their question by telling them, I am the bridegroom. I am the Messiah. I'm the reason you've been fasting. You've been fasting in anticipation of me, and I'm here. Fasting and mourning is completely inappropriate while I'm here. But then he follows it up by immediately saying something that is most definitely not part of a wedding celebration. In the second half of verse 15, the second half of verse 15, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Well, that's not normal, right? You don't go to many weddings where they get married, we're at the reception, and then some dudes rush in and grab the groom and drag him out of the room. That doesn't happen. And so Jesus has fully embraced his analogy. He's not really talking about a wedding anymore. Now he's just talking a little more directly. There's coming a day when I, the bridegroom, will be taken from these disciples. And when that happens, there will be appropriate for them to fast. And they will. He's saying there's coming a day when I will be taken away. He's making an allusion. He's making a reference to something that's a couple years down the road, right? We're at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's a few years away that he's going to be arrested and crucified and buried and resurrect. That's coming. It isn't here yet. And he's talking about it. He's saying there will be a day when I, Jesus, the Messiah, the bridegroom, will be taken away and I won't be with my disciples any longer. And then there would be good reason for fasting. You fasted during the time when you were waiting for the Messiah to come. Now I'm here. And there's no need to fast. Then there will come another time when you will be waiting on my arrival again, and then it will be appropriate to fast again. And he says, and then they will fast. 
He doesn't say, then they might fast, then they may fast. He says, they will. And he's not commanding his disciples. He's not saying, hey, boys, just a heads up. When I'm gone, and that's coming, I don't know if you understand that yet, but when I'm gone, you need to fast. He's not commanding them, but he is giving a prophecy. He's saying, this is what's coming. They will fast when I'm gone. And indeed, we do see the disciples fasting several times in the book of Acts. So Jesus has told them that the way things really are does not fit in the way that they view the world. But then he goes on in the next two verses to make that point even more abundantly clear. Using two analogies, Luke would call them parables in his gospel. Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So he starts off by saying no one. No one does this thing. This thing I'm about to say is unthinkable. No one would do this. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. It doesn't work. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't take an old cloak that you've had for years and you've washed a thousand times that has a little tear and put a brand new piece of cloth over that tear. That brand new piece of cloth, the next time you wash it, is going to shrink. But the rest of the garment won't because it has already shrunk on previous washings. And now the little patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear the repair that you tried to make and make a worse tear. It's a ridiculous thing to do. You wouldn't do it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus has moved on from the original question about fasting, and now he's talking about what's behind their question, the question that they didn't ask. How are we meant to understand what you're up to, what you're teaching? We don't, we don't get it. We're hearing you, we're watching you, we don't understand. And he's saying, yes, you don't understand, because the way things actually are now that I'm here is different. Everything has changed. It doesn't fit in the way that you see the world anymore. Jesus is not here to patch up a worn out Judaism. This is not a reformation. This is not him coming to give a facelift to traditional Judaism. This is something new. And that's what Jesus is trying to help them see. This is not something, it's not a tweak on what you've been thinking all along. Something new has come. A new covenant is here. Jesus has been showing this very clearly already through his behavior, through his teaching, through his ministry, has such power, such force, right? When he goes places, demons flee. Demons are like, is that Jesus? Ooh, they freak out. When Jesus shows up, things don't go well. When Jesus shows up, people that are sick, stop being sick. When Jesus shows up, lepers go from being unclean to clean, and they don't have to go through any ritual cleansing to get there. Jesus touches them. And what should happen is their uncleanliness would make him unclean. But instead, his touch, he says, be clean. He's demonstrating, I'm here to undo all that's been done wrong. I'm here to fix all the problems. I'm here to bring something new. This is a new day. This is a new covenant. It doesn't fit with the way you've seen the world up until now. You have not understood, and I'm here to illuminate you. I'm here to teach you. And he goes on in verse 17 to say it again. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So when you make wine, you take grape juice and you either just let it be grape juice 
and eventually yeast will get in there because you can't help that because yeast is floating around everywhere, or you put yeast in it on purpose. Either way, yeast gets in there, and the yeast begins to eat sugar and produce alcohol, which makes wine alcoholic, and carbon dioxide gas. And so you take wine, you put it in a skin, which would literally be the skin of an animal, a bladder or a skin, and you put the wine in there and you close it up, and now it's producing gas and it starts to expand. And that animal skin has some elasticity to it, it has some stretch, it has some give. And so it'll stretch until the wine is finished fermenting and ready to drink, and you can drink it, yay, wine. But if you take that skin now that you've drunk all that wine, and you try to make new wine and put it in that same skin, now that skin can't stretch anymore. It's already stretched. Now it's older, it's drier, it's more brittle. And you put new wine in there, and when it starts to stretch with that gas, it literally will burst. And you lose the wine, and you lose the wine skin. And Jesus says, no, you have to take the new wine and put it in new wine skins so you can preserve both. So Jesus' teachings cannot be confined to or relegated to traditional Judaism, the way that they've been thinking this for so many years. Because what his followers did was a part of something new. To try to force Jesus' teaching to fit inside the Jewish system of belief and culture would be to invite disaster, like the mended cloth or the old wineskin. He says both are preserved, the new wine and the new wineskin. And in this analogy, the new wine is this new covenant, and the new wineskin is the church. Matthew makes mention of the church later in verses chapters 16 and 18, because Matthew understands what's going on here. There is this new formation taking place, this new covenant that's come Because Jesus is here to take all that they believed, all that they clung to, all that they were putting their hope in and say, I'm fulfilling all of that. I'm not getting rid of it. We're not throwing it in the trash. I'm fulfilling it so that this new covenant can begin. So what are we supposed to take from this passage? What are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to go and do in light of this? Well, our focus needs to be the same as Jesus's focus because Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, we have the same problem that John's disciples had. The reality of the way things now are that Christ has come tends to not fit, doesn't fit with our conception of the way we would like the world to work, and certainly not with the way that we observed the world working apart from him. The way we want things to be is not how they are. Jesus has brought something new. It's hard for us to understand especially for those who've been living outside of that reality for most of our lives. So Jesus here is claiming deity for himself. He's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm God. He's claiming that his presence on earth is cause for rejoicing and that mourning and fasting have no place while he's here. That ought to be shocking. That ought to be surprising because the good news of Jesus Christ is a shocking and surprising and astounding thing. Are we shocked and amazed and astounded? Or do we be like, yeah, 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 Jesus, hooked it up for me, died from my sins. Real nice, Clark. We can't do what John the Baptist's disciples hoped and seemed to try to be doing. We cannot take what he's doing and try to conform it to our way. We cannot try to say, this is the way I want the world to work, and I want to slap a little Jesus in there. 
I want to take what Jesus is up to and try to squish it into what I already believe, how I already like things to be. Christianity isn't anything that you already know and that you do that gets a Jesus makeover. Christianity isn't being a political conservative with a Jesus bumper sticker. Christianity isn't homeschooling your kids with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. Christianity isn't even lots of Bible reading or church attendance or prayer, although those things certainly should be outworkings of a faithful Christian. Christianity isn't being in five Bible studies. Some of these things are good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do them. I'm saying that's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian isn't just going to church, reading your Bible, doing things you think are good. Christianity is a radical overhaul of everything you are and everything you believe. Jesus was teaching that there's something new happening. Something new is going on here. There's a new covenant being established between God and man, and he was teaching it there when it hadn't fully happened yet. He's teaching about something that he's not done doing. He's trying to help them see something new has come. I am here. There is no reason for fasting or mourning. The bridegroom has come, but he's not finished his work. He's not gone to the cross. He's not been resurrected yet. And so it's really difficult for these listeners to hear and understand him. We have the joy and the privilege of being able to look back on these verses with a lot greater understanding about what took place. We can see now with a little bit more clarity than John's disciples, the weight and the significance and the meaning of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection because they've already happened for us. We can listen to a thousand podcasts and read a thousand books expanding on these things. We can listen to and talk to and discuss and debate these issues with one another on social media, which I don't recommend, and then contemplate them in your own minds while sitting in your home, in your car, sipping an overpriced cup of coffee. And yet we still have the same problem as those disciples of John the Baptist. Our wicked hearts have the same desire. In spite of the shocking knowledge of what Christ has done, we still have a desire. I have a desire still. You have a desire still to try to conform Christ to your worldview to try to make what he's done fit into the way you like things to be. We still want to add him to our pantheon of things that we find worthwhile and good. We don't want to see things the way things really are. We want to retain some semblance of control. We want to manufacture our own comfort, our own joy, our own peace, our own kingdom. All the while pretending like we can slap a Jesus bumper sticker on that and it'll be good enough. But Jesus needs no room for that nonsense. When reality comes crashing into our worldview, when the reality doesn't fit, one of those things has to give. Are we going to try to get Jesus to change or are we going to abandon what doesn't fit in his worldview? He tells us right here in this conversation with these men, you can't have it your way. It doesn't fit. It will tear the garment. It will burst the wineskin. A new day has come. A new covenant is here. It's his way, not my way. 
If we will just stop polishing all of our idols long enough to gaze upon his lovely face, then we're going to see that his way is infinitely better. His way produces genuine comfort that we were trying to manufacture on our own. His way produces genuine joy that we are trying to manufacture on our own. His way produces genuine peace that we were trying to manufacture on our own. And he, and he alone, is the rightful ruler of the kingdom. Not you, not me. And what does he expect for this? For this joy, for this peace, for this comfort that he provides, for this righteousness that he provides that he might hold up the other end of the covenant for you. What does he expect of you? What does he demand of us in order to experience all of this? Our eternal and perfect submission and obedience to bend the knee to King Jesus and to renounce all other allegiances, which you can't adequately provide. You can't do that because you're a sinner. So he provides that too. He holds up both ends of the bargain. This is 100% him, 0% us. Because we were dead in our trespasses. Dead people don't do anything. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because like another pastor I heard said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And this is good news. This reality, this understanding of who Jesus actually is, that he is the bridegroom, that he is God incarnate, that he is the savior of the world, that he is the king of the universe, that reality should cause us to joyfully step down off the throne of our own hearts. Because either the king will be on the throne or you will. Your idolatry, your pride is sneaky. It's crafty. You will find yourself sitting on the throne that belongs to King Jesus without recognizing it at first, which is why we need one another. This is why we need the Spirit to convict us of sin, to help us see where we don't like the fact that it doesn't fit and we want to keep our way. We don't want to abandon it and embrace the beauty of the new covenant. What we want is to remain on the throne. We want to sit in his chair. We want to tell Jesus, I don't like your way. I like my way. That's what my heart wants to do every day. And praise God that Jesus has come so that my wicked heart can be counted as righteous. When he looks at me, he sees righteous, not because I'm good, but because Jesus was good, because Jesus has been perfect, because Jesus has done all that needed to be done. And so one of us will sit on that throne, Christ or ourselves. And so our job is to find out where, where it is that I want to remain on the throne have I given things over to this new way? Have I abandoned this old understanding? Have I embraced this new covenant except for this one place? I like the way that I create comfort for myself by insulating myself from the world, by avoiding difficult things. I will provide my own comfort in that regard or will I give that to him as well? We need to get off the throne and let Jesus rule and reign 
because that's who he is. That's what he's telling us. I'm here. There's no need for you to fear. There's no need for you to be anxious. There's no need to mourn. There's no need to fast. I have come. Be not afraid. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are good. That this new covenant that your son has come and established is something beautiful. It's not something to be rejected. It's not something to be fearful of. It's not something to try to conform to our own image, to our own worldview. It's something to be embraced. That you have chosen to make it possible for sinners like us to be reconciled to you. That you have chosen to make it possible for us to be counted as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That you've chosen to forgive sinners like us because of his life and his death and his resurrection. This is astounding. This is shocking. And it's good. And so, Lord, will you forgive us where we fail to see this as good, where we fail to see this new and beautiful covenant that Jesus has established as righteous and good and for our good, where we fail to see that because of our fear, because of our anxiety, because of our sin. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to help us. Help us to embrace the truth of Jesus' words. The bridegroom is here. He has come. There's no need for mourning. We can fast because we now await his return. But we ask you to help us to see the truth of what Jesus was saying to these men. They're asking about fasting. He's talking to them about eternal things. May those eternal things penetrate our heart this morning, Lord, that we might worship you in spirit and truth, that our hearts would be exploding with joy because of what you have done in Christ. We're grateful that you are a good God. We're grateful that you are so patient with us. You're so slow to anger with us. You're so abounding in steadfast love toward us who deserve none of this beautiful gift that you give. And so we ask for you to be near to us this morning. Help us to see what we do not see. Help us to see where we desire to usurp your authority, to take your throne. Give us humility. Give us repentance. Give us joy in our salvation. We love you. We pray these things in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, the Messiah, the bridegroom, the Christ. Amen.